www.ebcc.com. Hey, glad you're with us this morning. Not only for, uh, you know, soup, but also for uh, our teaching this morning and our time of worship. It's great to be together. We're picking up this week in Romans chapter 3. We're going to be looking at verses 21 through 26 most specifically. Um, In our English translation, uh, these are six very loaded verses, but in the original Greek, it's like all one sentence, right? So that's partly because the the ancient Greek uh, language wasn't really all that concerned about punctuation, (laughs) like we are um, in the English language, but what really strikes me most is just how this one big thought is so complex and uh, all the concepts in it are kind of interwoven and intermingled and uh, it's a lot of different concepts wrapped together. So in other words, it's really deep, right? It's really deep. Um, So this morning we're only going to cover these six verses, but we've still kind of got our work cut out for us, I guess is the point. So we'll buckle up, let's roll. Uh, I'll warn you that some of this might feel a little brainy. Um, but I think it's really important, really good stuff. So, uh, the title for the message or the talk today is uh, The Just and the Justifier. And uh, just for clarity, talking about God in that sense, the just and the justifier. And it's just taken from the last line of the sentence that we'll be looking at today. So, super brief recap of Romans and where we've been over the last six weeks before today. Uh, Paul starts off helping us see that we aren't righteous and that we can't attain righteousness on our own, but righteousness, being in right standing with God, gets us, it gets credited to us when we put our faith and trust in Jesus. Salvation comes through righteousness, but righteousness comes through faith, right? And that's the good news, the gospel of Jesus, which Paul said is the power of God for salvation to those who believe. So he starts there, and then he covers four different ways of thinking or belief systems that really don't cut it when it comes to our salvation or getting into heaven. Each of these has kind of a critical flaw, at least one. And so he first starts talking about paganism or pagan thinking. It's worshiping creation and disregarding the creator. Uh, And by doing that, he talks about how basically we end up ignoring God's righteous standards, and then when we ignore those standards, anything goes. Right? So that's a problem. He talks about the problem with moralism, which is kind of that we operate on this sliding scale. Right? Like we view ourselves not to be as bad as some people, therefore, God will surely let us into heaven. Right? And the scale keeps sliding because we need to make sure we're included <laughs> in that. Right? There's a problem with self-effort. The idea that if we just follow all the rules, uh, that we'll be fine. Because we have this, the problem is that when we come up short, we still think we're going to get a good response from God. Like a good result in the end. Like surely our hard work counts for something and he's just going to overlook that. And then the fourth problem is religious identity, which we talked about last week. And that's banking on our history and our heritage or our tradition for salvation. Now, specifically, he was talking about the Jewish people, but it applies to us. We can often do that same thing, rely upon, oh, this idea of, well, 
you know, my parents went to this church, or my dad or my uncle was a missionary, or that sort of thing, and banking on something other than a relationship with Jesus to make us right with God, thinking that that will work. The Jews reasoned that God wouldn't reject any of them at the judgment because he had promised to be faithful to them as a people. And so they had this false sense of entitlement because they were special. Right? They felt that God played favorites and they were the favorites. <laughs> so they're going to be in, right? Then he starts talking about the law, and we kind of began to dive into this last week a little bit in verses 19 through 20. And so we'll, we'll look at these before we get to our main text, but um, he ended with, uh, 19, or we ended with 19 and 20, and Paul says that in giving God's law to us, he established a standard that affects everyone. So verse 19, now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. So Paul had said earlier that those who don't have the law, the non-Jewish people, they're going to perish in their ignorance because they don't have the law. They didn't know the law. Well, those who do have the law are going to be judged by it. So the law itself, it shows that everyone is guilty of sin. And here was the idea that every non-Jewish person who ever existed sinned because they didn't have the law to go by. Right? They might be tempted then to stand before God at the judgment and blame him and say, well, well, that's not fair. Of course I sinned. Of course I failed because I didn't have the law. How could I possibly know any better? But that argument won't hold up, Paul says. Because the Jews did have the law. And every one of them broke the law anyway. So in, in that sense, the law itself stops every mouth, Paul says. Law or no law, everyone is guilty. Everyone is accountable to God. And then verse 20, he says, For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight. Is that it makes us aware of our sin. No one's able to keep it perfectly. Therefore, no one will be justified or declared righteous before God by his or her ability to follow the law. The law of God we're talking about specifically here. And that, that word for justified, that Greek word for justified means, again, to just be declared just or right. Standing with God. And earlier Paul had said, look, it's not the hearers of the word, but the doers of the word that are justified. Like, you have to do God's word in order to be justified and declared righteous. But that means you have to keep God's law, all of it, perfectly. Otherwise, you're a lawbreaker. And so here he says kind of the same thing in a different way, right? By, he says that no one by works will be justified or declared righteous. Again, because we can't do it all right. It's not possible. And so fortunately... God has made a way of salvation that doesn't depend on our ability to follow the law. Right? And that's what he dives into next. So Romans 3, 21 through 26, um, and, and because it's all like one big thought, I want to read it 
through, and then we'll kind of break it down as we work through, okay? So Romans 3, 21 through 26. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Right? So one big sentence in the Greek and a lot of thoughts, a lot of stuff that's tied together. So as we're breaking it down, just kind of keep that in mind that these, these are all intertwined and interwoven with each other. So back to the beginning of this uh, this uh, paragraphical sentence, or whatever you'd want to call it. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. That's verses 21 and 22. So in chapter 1, Paul had said that the gospel, or in the gospel, the righteousness of God had been revealed or like unveiled to us. And we talked about how Jesus, first of all, is the standard for righteousness, right? Perfect is the standard. But Jesus is also the means of attaining righteousness, our faith in him. And Paul says that God's righteousness, in other words, Jesus, has been manifested or made clear or made visible to us. It's now plain. It's in plain view. It's an open view for us. It has become apparent to us all in the person of Jesus. And, and I think the, the key I, thing about that that I just want to point out is that God's righteousness is not something that we would be able to find on our own. Right? Aside from God sending Jesus, aside from God revealing it to us or giving it to us, we wouldn't find it. And had he not done so, we would be screwed, right, is kind of like the technical term. <laughs> we would be in trouble. We would be in rough shape. But because he has given Jesus to us the righteousness of God, he says it's now graspable. Right? It's now graspable. And then Paul points out that righteousness is something that has been given to us or manifested apart from the law. Right? It isn't dependent on us perfectly accomplishing the law. It comes through faith in Jesus. It is because of or on account of our faith in Jesus that we're justified and declared righteous. And this is true of all who believe. Right? That's what Paul says. It means both the Jews who had the law and the Gentiles who didn't, they have the same standing. We're all on level ground. Okay? And then the next end of that verse 22, he says, for there's no distinction. Right? Verse 23, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. 
all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. No distinction. This is one of the key verses uh, that is part of what we often refer to as the Romans road. We'll kind of point that out as we go along. It's like a starting point, realizing that we've all fallen short of the glory of God. And this verse, pretty critical, because it kind of sums up what Paul has been arguing for like the last two chapters. And um, before we push forward in this, I want to let the, the gravity, I guess, of these words sink in a little bit. He says that all have sinned. That means me, and that means you, each one of you, and your spouse, and your parents, and your kids, and your relatives, and your neighbors, your co-workers, your acquaintances, everyone you've ever met, everyone you will never meet, all have sinned. It's important that we kind of see us all in that light. And he says, all fall short. Right? Like every person. That includes us even as Christians. We have to recognize we've all fallen short. Every pastor, every elder, every missionary, every youth worker, every kids leader, every member, every attender, every, if you're a decades-long believer or you're a brand-new baby Christian, you've fallen short. And every person who is not a Christian, every agnostic, every atheist, every Buddhist, Muslim, Mormon, Jehovah's Witness, New Ager, Christian scientist, astrologist, Satanist, right? Everyone has fallen short. Not one person, no matter how good they think they are or how good you think they are, has been, is now, or ever will be good enough. All have sinned. All fall short. Like, we have to get that. We have to get that. It's what Paul spent this couple of chapters proving or writing about. And I know sometimes the tendency is to be like, oh, but there's good in everybody. We have to see the good in people. That's not what Scripture says. Right? It's also not a helpful starting point for salvation. Right? Yes, we're made in God's image. That is true. I want to validate that. It's why there is value in every person, and we've got to see that. But that image has been marred by sin. We are sinful not only by choice, but by nature. And so I think it's accurate to say this. If there's any goodness in us, it's there by the grace of God. And that little bit of goodness in us is not good enough to save us. At the core, we are sinful and we all need a Savior. Right? And I know you might be saying, well, yeah, I get that. We talked about that for six weeks. Seems like it's all we're talking about here at Portico. <laughs> Why do you think Paul spent so much effort painting this kind of bleak picture of humanity? Because he wants us to see that the problem is the same for every single one of us. We have to see that. Okay, and here's, I think, why that's important. One key idea we can take away from today is this. Once we realize we're all in the same sinking ship, we'll see that we all need rescuing. 
right? Once we realize we're all in the same sinking ship, we'll see that we all need rescuing. All have sinned. All fall short. It's not just, this is not just about you and me personally needing Jesus. Like, I need to be focused on getting people off the Titanic and into the lifeboats. And the lifeboat is Jesus, right? In case that isn't very clear. The problem is the same for everyone. All have sinned. All fall short. And here's, I think, why that's so important, is because the solution is the same for everyone too. Right? That is what he's getting to. For there is no distinction, verse 22, verse 23, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, continuing in verse 24 and 25, and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. The problem is the same for everyone. And the only solution is also the same for everyone. Now there's a few words in this section as we consider the, excuse me, the solution that are mentioned for the first time in the body of his letter. And I want to just point these couple of these out. The first one is grace. Right? First one is grace. Now he did mention grace in his greeting to them. But this is the first time he's talking about it in the body of his letter, his argument. And grace, charis in, Greece, in Greek, means kindness, grace, or favor. Like we typically understand uh, grace to mean undeserved kindness or favor because we include this idea that um, we didn't deserve it. We didn't do anything to deserve God's goodness towards us, but he gave it to us anyway. Like we're getting something good that we simply don't deserve. So undeserved kindness or unmerited favor. Like what we deserve is judgment and wrath because all have sinned and all fall short. But instead, God shows us grace and offers us forgiveness and salvation. So that's the first word that's pretty important. The second one is redemption. It talks about redemption. And it's apolutrosis. We often describe redeemed as being bought back with a price. A, a release effected by a payment of a ransom. That's what being redeemed is about. Right? So in the Old Testament, it kind of foreshadowed this work that Jesus was going to accomplish. Uh, and uh, you know, God commanded that um, every firstborn male would be brought to the temple and dedicated to the Lord. Like, given to the Lord, literally. But then the parents would be required to offer a payment to buy back the child. Again, it might seem weird or a little unusual, but it was a representation, a type, of what the Savior would accomplish. We were bought back and brought back to God with a price. The price that was paid was His death on the cross. That was what our redemption cost. So redemption is a second pretty important word. And the third word is propitiation. Propitiation. And this one might be the most, well, uncommon to us. You know, I can't think of, aside from talking about this in, uh, you know, reading the Scripture passage, where I've had a lot of conversations about propitiation with anyone. But 
It's the word halisterion, and uh, it means to win or regain favor by doing something that pleases someone. Right? Now, this is a kind of in-depth idea, but this word is also the same word that is used to describe what is called the mercy seat. And uh, the mercy seat was a, in the Old Testament, it was this covering or lid that was on the Ark of the Covenant where God's presence was, God's presence dwelled. The people would carry this Ark with them. Um, you know, the most familiarity we probably have with that is like Raiders of the Lost Ark, right? Indiana Jones was going after this thing. Um, but but uh, the people would carry this through the wilderness with them, and, and the presence of God was there. Well, within uh, once a year on what was called the Day of Atonement, uh, the, 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 the high priest had to go in, slaughter a bull and a goat as a sacrifice. And then seven times he would sprinkle their blood on top of the ark, on the lid, on the mercy seat, as a way of temporarily appeasing God for the sins of all the people. It was this foreshadowing of what God was going to do through Christ. He who would become the blood sacrifice would take our place and atone for our sins. Now, we're the ones that sinned against God, and we have nothing to give that can satisfy that wrath that he's going to pour out on sin and ungodliness and unrighteousness. So God gave Jesus as an offering for sin to appease his own judgment and wrath. Right? And Isaiah talked about this, the prophet, Isaiah 53.5, he says, but talking about looking forward to the Savior, but who is Jesus? But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds were healed. Right? So instead of pouring God's, God pouring his wrath on us, he poured it out on Jesus who took our place. Jesus became an offering for our sin by which the wrath of God was appeased and satisfied. He was the propitiation. Right? But the big difference was this. He wasn't a temporary fix that they had to do once a year on a certain day. Jesus' sacrifice was a permanent one. It was a permanent one and put an end to all that. So, put what we've got so far all together. We are justified or declared righteous by his grace, his undeserved kindness, unmerited favor, as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. He bought us back and brought us back through Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood. In other words, God satisfied his wrath through the cross and appeased his anger towards sin and unrighteousness through Jesus in our place. Through Jesus, who is to be received by faith. So Jesus is this gift to us from God, but salvation is something we must personally receive by putting our faith and trust in Him. This is an amazingly loaded thought, and we're 
just about halfway through the sentence. <laughs> Not quite, a little bit more. Here's the, here's the last part. This, verse uh, 25, this was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. So the phrase that here for um, forbearance and passing over is this word, uh, parasine, and it's like the only time it's used in Scripture that makes it a little tougher to nail it down uh, precisely, but what Paul is saying is that throughout history, God has been overlooking sin. Not overlooking in the sense that he's ignoring it. Not, uh, you know, but that he's delayed his response to it. Right? He's been bearing with it, so to speak, up to this point. He will pass judgment on sin one day. But in the meantime, he's passing over it. That's significant. Because had God just looked at our sin and said, I'm going to wipe this out. I'm going to wipe out sin and ungodliness and unrighteousness from the earth, not one of us would be here. We would never have come to know his righteousness. But in Christ, in Jesus, he has revealed or manifested that righteousness and the way to attain it at the proper time, Paul says, in order for us to see that righteousness and to receive it for ourselves. And Paul says because he has done all of this, God is both just and the justifier. Right? God is both just and the justifier. He's just, meaning he's the perfect judge who will get every one of his decisions and rulings right. Every single time. He is just. And He is the justifier. He's the one who made a way for us to be on the good side of His judgment. So you can think of it this way. God is the lawgiver who set the standard. He's also the judge who pronounced us guilty because we couldn't meet that standard. But then He's the redeemer, the one who provides the payment for the penalty in Jesus, His Son. And he sets free anyone who will receive him by faith. And I think that is an important part we can't miss. Because God has done so much. But who is it that he justifies according to the scripture? Who does he declare righteous? Who does he set free? Everyone? Automatically? Blank slate? Everyone gets a free pass? No, he is, the ju he is just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. The problem is the same for everybody. But so is the solution. It's faith in Jesus. We have to respond to him by trusting and following him. We have to respond by faith. And we're going to see how that plays out as we look at uh, the coming verses or the coming chapters um, starting next week. So we've re reached the end of this complex sentence. Right? This is all the thought. <laughs> all the intertwined, interwoven concepts is a lot. But I want to kind of end with this. And again, I know some of this stuff is a bit heady. But I was thinking about all of this, thinking, you know what? 
Some people might have a really hard time with the idea that we can be saved simply through trusting Jesus? (laughs) Through our faith alone in Jesus? Because that seems like a cheat code. Right? Like, just enter it in, enter, and the whole slate's wiped clean? You might even then look at the whole of the Old Testament law and think, well, God failed then by giving us the law, didn't he? Because it didn't work. And he had to come up with a plan B. Listen, God was not surprised by how this went. It wasn't as if God made all these rules, but they didn't work out the way he planned. So he just pushed them aside and said, ah, never mind. That was a bad idea. Just do this instead. Like, he knew we wouldn't be able to keep the law. But he wasn't just creating some sort of loophole in Jesus for us to get out of it. If that's what God did, that would be a problem. This is similar to something we talked about last week. If God doesn't follow through on his promises and do what he says he's going to do, that makes him unjust, and it also makes him a liar. The same thing if he wouldn't uphold the standards of the law that he gave. It would make him unjust, and he'd be going back on his word. So here's something I think we need to to keep in mind. In order for God to be just and true, he had to satisfy the requirements of the very law he gave. In order for God to be just and true, he had to satisfy every requirement of the very law he gave, which is exactly what he's done in Jesus. And be sure that you see this. Paul uses terms like propitiation, justification, redemption, legal terms to show us that God is meeting all the necessary requirements of the the law that he gave. Jesus was perfect. He followed God's law in every way, which means he alone was qualified to be our propitiation, that substitute, that sacrifice, who can appease God's wrath and anger. That settles the requirement of the law. We can't get into heaven unless we have the righteousness of God, and we all have failed. But we are justified or declared righteous through faith in Jesus. That satisfies the requirement of the law. It settles the requirement of the law. Jesus gave his life as a sacrifice on the cross. By his blood, we're redeemed. We're bought back with a price. We're brought back to God by Jesus. That settles the requirement of the law. Right? It's why Jesus said in Matthew 5, Do not think I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. To fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot, in other words, not one ink stroke of the law of God's word, will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Like Paul is showing us This is exactly what Jesus has done. He's accomplished or fulfilled the law for us. Through faith in Jesus, we can legally be declared righteous by God. 
Like if we think he's just making a loophole or inserting a cheat code to get us salvation, then I don't think we're really seeing the depth of what Jesus accomplished. And that's why it's so important to pull through all this. I want to just read you a quote from uh, a, a teacher, or pastor, from Verse by Verse Ministries named Stephen Armstrong. And um, here is a summary of this that I really, really appreciated. And he said this, All men and women are under bondage to sin, in debt to God's court for our lifetime of sin. That debt must be paid, or else a verdict of innocence would be a miscarriage of justice. We know God is perfect without sin himself. And therefore, he alone can declare us innocent of our sin should our debt be paid. And Paul says our justification, our declaration of righteousness, is legally possible because Christ paid the necessary price to redeem us from the penalty we rightly deserved. So God's actions to acquit are both valid and lawful because another has redeemed us before the law. What an incredible thing that Jesus has done. Again, not just a cheat code, not just a shortcut, not just ignoring the law, but completely fulfilling it, meeting all the requirements so that we could be legally, by God, declared as righteous. That is mind-blowing. And, and I know even trying to capture that and portray that and describe that this morning doesn't even come close to, how ac- to accurately portraying just how amazing it really is. That last point one more time, in order for God to be just and true, he had to satisfy every requirement of the very law he gave. And we can add on to that that he did so in Jesus. He did so in Jesus. It's why we praise the Lord. It's why we thank him. It's why we worship him. It's why he is called the King of Kings. It's why he's the one who deserves all the glory. Because he is both just, perfect in all of his decisions, all of his judgments, but he is the justifier, the one, the justifier, the one who, can, who has paid the penalty for us, specifically of each and every person who has faith in Jesus. This morning we're going to close with a song of worship. And before we do, I just want to give us a moment. I don't want to wrap this up in prayer for you this morning. Um, I want to give you a moment to just consider everything that we have just mind-blowingly worked through, the depth, the gravity of what Jesus has accomplished, and give us an opportunity individually, in the quietness of our own heart, just to express our worship and our thanks to him. And then we'll close in this song.
Thanks for listening to the podcast of the Portico Church in Oshkosh, Wisconsin. You can find out more about our church at porticocommunity.com. 